Hey, I'm so glad you're joining us today online. Uh, welcome to our online service. And uh, I've heard from some of you, uh, but if you're watching this, some of you haven't been here in person. I've been kind of tracking with us online. Uh, email me. Let me know how you're doing. Let me know that you're tracking with us online. Uh, I've heard from some of you in the greater Akron area, but if that's you, email me. Let me know how you're doing. I've heard from some people outside of the Akron area, from Virginia and Boston and things like that. We're glad you're joining us as well. What a great opportunity this is. We're in this series called The Gospel, and hopefully you've been kind of tracking with us through the series. If not, go catch up. Uh, but it's been a fascinating series, and the essence of this series is this, is I want you to know God loves you. That's what I want you to know. Like the word gospel means good news and the good news of God found in the Bible is this, that God loves you. Now, now there's some bad news attached to that. I'm a sinner, right? But it starts with God loves you. I'm a sinner, but Jesus, because of God's love for us, died for me while I was in my sin. That's the good news called the gospel, right? And so Jesus died, he paid the price for my sin. And Jesus died, was buried, rose again. The minute I say yes to Jesus as my savior, Lord, and King, I'm forgiven of my sins, placed in the family of God, and my future is secure forevermore. That's the gospel. And through this series, here's the deal. I want some of you to get it for the first time, to raise your hand, to say yes to Jesus to declare with your mouth, Jesus is Savior and Lord. You can stop this video right now, right? And talk to God and say, God, I believe you love me. I'm a sinner and I believe Jesus died for me. And I wanna confess him as Savior, Lord and King. I want some of you to get it for the first time. Others of you, uh, you maybe have gotten it, but I want you to grow in it. Because the gospel isn't just how I start the Christian life, the gospel is how I live the Christian life. And if I grow in it, here's what we've said, I'm gonna give it away. That's why we said, one theologian said, it's important that we preach the gospel to ourselves every day. The book that, that we're kind of using that has inspired this series says, it's important for us to pray the gospel every day. And so we've been taking this prayer found in the book, Gospel by J.D. Greer, and we've been ripping that thing apart each week. And that prayer, this gospel prayer, is something that you can check out for yourself, but we'll throw it up here. It simply says this, in Christ, there's nothing I can do that would make you, God, love me more, right? Gospel acceptance. Nothing I've done that makes you love me less. I'm accepted because of what he did. I am who God says I am. Your presence and approval are all I need for everlasting joy. My satisfaction is found in God in the gospel. As you've been to me, so I'll be to others. Gospel transformation. And here's how we're gonna end it, right? These last two weeks together in this series. As I pray, he says this, I'll measure your compassion by the cross and your power by the resurrection. It's just the first part of that that I wanna look at today. Next week, Pastor Aiden's gonna lead us in the last part of that. But I guess you could call this gospel measuring, for lack of a better word. Uh, the question is this, how big do you think God's love for you is? I had a guy pull me into his office one time that I worked for, and he asked me a question. And he said, Dan, what do you think God's gonna ask you when you get to heaven? I thought it was a trick question. And I was in seminary at the time trying to come up with the right answer, right? I finally said, I'm not sure. And the guy said to me, I don't know either, right? Which is a thanks, right? But he said, I wouldn't be surprised if God looked at us and said, did you have any inkling of an idea of how much I love you? 
Because when I begin to understand his love, it changes everything. Here's what I know. When it comes to measuring God's love, it's important that we measure accurately. Now, some of you, your job makes it absolutely important that you measure accurately. Now, some of you live by the motto, measure what? Say it. Twice, cut once, right? So you live by that motto, right? You want to make sure you got the right measurement. Uh, something else I know about measuring is this. Not only do you need to measure accurate, but you need to have the right tool to measure what it is you're measuring. Not every tool is meant to measure everything. Y you know that, right? Like if I'm measuring to cut a piece of wood or some flooring, things like that, I'm going to use a tape measure. But when I go on my walk this afternoon, <laughs> if I want to measure how far I went, I'm probably not going to drag a tape measure behind me, right? I'm going to use a pedometer or something like that so I can measure my steps and how far I went. But if I'm going to drive out to see my daughter, I'm probably not going to use something that measures my steps. I'm going to use an odometer. Why? Because that's going to measure the mileage. You see, here's what I know. Understanding how big something is is important. It's important to be accurate and have an accurate way to measure it so that I can respond accurately to what it is that I'm measuring. And there are several, several ways in which you can start to get an idea of how big something is. Uh, first is this, you can measure it. Second is uh, you can have somebody show you a picture of it and you can kind of guess. I remember uh, the picture the first time I ever heard about the Grand Canyon. I was just a kid. And, and, and the first thing I remember is somebody saying how big it was. I'm like, well, when you're a kid, you're like, well, big, man, it's probably bigger than my house, right? That's what I thought. Like, I was just comparing it to my house. My house is big. I bet the Grand Canyon's big. And then I, I remember hearing this guy named Evil Knievel. Raise your hand, Reverend. You, you remember him? He's like, he's gone jumping on his motorcycle, right? And I'm like, wow, that's, he's going to jump over my house. Well, then I remember seeing a picture of it. And I'm like, well, that's bigger than I thought. And, and, and then I remember the first time I ever got the dimensions of it. I'm like, oh, wow, it's bigger than the picture looks. I remember they told me this, like, it's one mile deep, 277 miles long, 18 miles wide. And I remember, oh, I remember in my brain, the best I could as a kid, saying, that, that sounds big, right? But can I tell you something? I knew the Grand Canyon was big. You know when I knew it? You know when I absolutely knew it? It was when my family took a trip out west. And I saw it. I remember standing on the edge of it, and I remember being captivated by it. It literally took my breath. I'm like, wow. I thought it was big, but when you stand up next to it, it was bigger than I thought. Listen to me. The love of God for you is big. God's love for you is big. It's bigger than you think. The question is just how big. Just how big is it? And getting our head around that begins with getting the right measurements and starting with the right tool to measure it. It's what caused a guy named Paul to pray for a church a certain way. In Ephesians chapter three, if you have a Bible, just go there, flip your phone open there. Here's what he said. He said, for this reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives his name and I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now listen, listen. And I pray, this is Paul praying, that you, I pray for you guys this way, by the way. I took Paul's prayer and I pray for you guys this way. That you, being rooted and established in love, 
may have power. Power for what? Power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp. Get your how, here's our measurements, wide and high or long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love surpasses knowledge. This is not facts. That you may be filled, there's this experience, to the measure of all the fullness of God. That's the measurement of the gospel. I remember as a kid, some of you might remember this, if, if you grew up in church, there was this song they used to sing, Deep and Wide. You remember that song? Like, deep and wide. I won't sing it, I promise. Right? Motions and all this stuff. Like, it comes right from here. I didn't know this is what it was talking about when I sang it. I just thought, cool song, motions, right? But it's talking about the love of God. How big is God's love for me? It is so deep, you'll never find the bottom. It's so high, you'll never reach the top. It's so wide, you'll never smash into the sides. It is so long, you'll never outlive it, outrun it. It is big. And here's the deal, the measuring tool isn't a tape measure, an odometer. It is nothing less than God's most poignant demonstration of his love, the cross. Here's what I know about the cross. You can know the facts about the cross, we sing songs about the cross. You can have symbols of the cross. You can even be inspired by certain pictures of the cross. But it's not until you did what I did with the Grand Canyon, you get up personally next to the cross and begin to measure God's love next to the cross of Christ personally that you begin to get an accurate picture of how big God's love for you is personally. What does this mean? What does it mean, the deep, high, wide, long love of Christ seen at the cross? What does it mean for us to be so convinced by it that it captivates us and that we become compelled by it? What does it mean? Well, write some things down for me, and then I'm going to show you some pictures to explain it, okay? So today I'm not preaching as much as I just want to coach and teach a little bit. Can we do that, right? Here's the first thing I write down. When it comes to the deep love of Christ for us, the deep love of Jesus, here's what it means. It's costly. It's the deep love of Jesus that reveals the immense cost that he paid to rescue us from our sin. I will never appreciate or adequately measure the depth of God's love for me if I cheapen the cost by somehow minimizing my sin, if I trivialize my sin, if I justify, rationalize my sin, I'll cheapen, I'll make shallow the love of Jesus for me. Now, now I want you to write this down because the deep love of Jesus holds hands with the high love of Jesus. I want you to write it down this way. The high love of Jesus is sufficient. He's saying, Dan, what do you mean by that? His love is sufficient and adequate to satisfy the holiness of God. It's so important that you know this. It doesn't get talked about enough. It is the high love of Jesus that is sufficient to satisfy God's holiness. I'll never appreciate or measure accurately the love of God if I minimize and trivialize God and his holy nature. If I'm gonna understand the love of God, I'm gonna have to develop what I've called in the past spiritual depth perception. And let me explain it this way. Let me explain this. Uh, my family and I, we have a swimming pool. We, we love you know, I love to swim for exercise. We love to have people over swim and things like that. Uh, one of the things that's interesting to me is this, is that with our swimming pool, when you come, if you came, you could look at my pool and you could tell how wide it is. 
You could look at my pool and tell how long it is, right? But you know the question I get asked all the time? People look at my pool and they'll say this, how what? Deep is it? <laughs> That's what they ask me, right? Because it's harder to tell how deep is it, right? I can't get my bearings, I can't tell how far the bottom goes, right? The spiritual depth perception, and here's what I know. I know that, that, that the further out you go in my pool, the deeper it gets. And so when you, if you come to my house, uh, Pastor uh, Adam has, has brought his kids before, right? And, and when they didn't know how to swim. And so it's like, hey, you wanna hang out up here in the shallow end where a kid can stand up. But can I just tell you this, that, that, that for those that can swim, like you wanna go on the deeper end. That's where you're gonna experience the fun. In fact, can we just say it this way? It's kind of creepy if a middle-aged guy is always hanging out in the kiddie part of the pool. Can we just say it? Can I amen on that? I'm like, Pastor Adam, get out in the deep end, man. That's kind of weird, right? Yeah, it's the truth. As I grow up in my relationship with God, I gotta go out in the deep end in understanding the depth and the height of his love. The deep love of God and the high love of God go together. Now, now listen, I'm gonna show you a picture in a minute. I will never understand or accurately measure the height of God's love for me unless I understand how holy he is. Look at this picture. I gotta head to the deep end of the pool. My understanding of God has to go from just being the big guy upstairs, you and me, God, to the holy king, the God who is the holy king of the universe. Now, we'll leave that up there for a minute. You can kind of draw this because we're going to fill this picture in, but my understanding of God's love will be in proportion. This is important to the size of God I have. And the truth is, some of us have an undersized God. Like some of us, if we're honest, this is not critical. I'm just saying, if we're honest, that's how we see God. It's a big guy. He's like a genie in a bottle. And, and I want to say this. If that's you, man, I'm so glad you're listening. That's not even close to the God of the Bible, the big God of the Bible, the powerful God of the Bible, the all-knowing God of the Bible, the all-seeing God of the Bible. The word the Bible uses to describe this God is he is a holy God. He is set apart. He is so pure with goodness where there's absolutely no bad, no corruption, no injustice, no capriciousness, no deceit, no wrongdoing. And here's the deal. Ready? When I venture out into the deep end, of my understanding of God. Now listen, this is gonna sound funny at first. It can at first be unnerving, unsettling, almost dangerous. Remember the first time you ventured on the deep end of the pool? <laughs> it kind of does that, right? Uh, there's a passage in the Bible I wanna show you. If you have time, just go there in your Bibles to the Old Testament, Isaiah. Go to chapter six, powerful. And I just wanna read it because I think the deep end of God's love and the high end of God's love collide together in this passage. Let me show you what it says. Uh, Isaiah 6, begin verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah, now that wouldn't mean much to you, but this guy reigned for 52 years. 50, I, I'm 55. <laughs> 52 years. In the year that King Uzziah died, so 52 years and now he's gone, Isaiah says, I saw the Lord high and exalted seated on the throne. That's good news, like this is a different sermon, right? But the fact of the matter is, Isaiah in that moment sees the truth about God, that he is the one sitting in the seat of authority. He is the one in charge. Listen, no matter who is in office, president, congress, mayor, governor, nothing, right? The one on the throne for a follower of Christ. I saw the Lord. 
right? And he says this, and the train of his robe filled the temple. The length of the ruler's train, here's what it did. It referenced their authority. God fills the whole place up. He's got ultimate authority. Above him were seraphim. That's kind of cool, right? Six wings. Love to see these uh, uh, beings with two wings. They cover their faces, two for their feet, two they were flying. Uh, and they were calling out to one another, holy, holy, holy. Say it three times. It's like, man, that is a big deal, is the Lord Almighty. They're not just saying holy, 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 but they're saying he's set apart, different, distinct. He's totally separate. He's not just a little better than us. He is holy. He is a God who cannot, this is where it gets unsettling, ignore sin and leave it unpunished because then he would cease to be a holy God. And it says the whole earth is full of his glory. That word glory means weight. When the weight of God comes on something, there's a God quake. Look at what happens. The sound of their voices, the doorpost, and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. The whole weight of his presence shook the temple. Here's what I believe. The reason the thought of God doesn't shake up our lives is because we have a lightweight God. But when you read about the God of the Bible, he is holy. He's bigger than I think. And the minute that Isaiah sees God in all of his holiness, when he sees him exactly as he is, it does something. It causes him to see himself as he really is. And look at the result, Isaiah 6. He says this, I see God, holy, holy, holy. And he says, now I see me. Woe is me. Woe to me. I'm ruined. I'm undone. I am a man of unclean lips. He was a preacher. <laughs> he was a preacher. And I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Here's what I mean. The further I got in the deep end of the gospel, right? God goes from being the big guy upstairs to the holy king, but I begin to see myself differently. Look at how the picture fills out. My view of God changes, but I gotta slowly but surely head to the deep end. I go from seeing myself as just a, a guy who just needs a little help to seeing myself as a sinner in desperate need of rescue. Big difference. Isaiah doesn't confront the truth of who God is, doesn't come into the presence of God and say, hey, what's up, big guy? <laughs> you notice that? Like, he doesn't do that, does he? Like, hey, God, what's up? Like, he doesn't do that. But, but when he confronts God and all of his holiness, he becomes undone, unsettled, and unglued. And he says, I'm ruined, I'm powerless, I'm wrecked. Only when I get here, do I see what deep weeds I'm in? And only when I get here do I see that the God whose presence I'm in, the top of the water line, so to speak, is higher than I thought. And it's only here that the power of the love of God can begin to explode. Look, look, stay with me on this picture. Here, I just need a little cross. I just need a little cross. When I get out here, do you see how the cross all of a sudden becomes so much bigger? Do you see that? I want you to see that. And it leads to a response of worship and passion. Look what Isaiah, back in Isaiah 6. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth, and he said, See, this has touched your lips. Look at this. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Now I want you to get this. What's going on here? 
This is the fire of God coming at Isaiah in the place where sacrifice for sin was made. The fire of God that could and would snuff out guilt, that could and would snuff out uncleanness. Instead, the fire of God coming right to Isaiah and forgiving guilt and pronouncing clean the unclean. Why? Because sacrifice has been made. Now listen, lean in, lean in now. This is a foreshadowing picture of another time, a couple hundred years later, where the temple of God would shake. The very curtain of the Holy of Holies would tear from top to bottom. And the reason it would tear from top to bottom is because the weight of God's glory would once again collide with the sacrifice. And that would be the answer to your guilt and my guilt and your uncleanness and my uncleanness. Isaiah's in the temple, and it's the temple where they sacrificed lambs and goats that were offered as a way of picturing that the holy and righteous wrath of God needed to be satisfied. When Jesus Christ enters the scene, John the Baptist points at him and says, look, the what? Lamb of God. That's weird verbiage. No, you don't say that to anybody you meet, right? What was he saying? He said, there's the sacrifice. He's the one who's gonna give his life. He is the lamb of God who's gonna give his life to satisfy the holy and righteous anger of a God who hates sin but loves sinners. His love is deep. It was costly. It cost more than you think. His love is high. It was sufficient. Guys, when we begin to understand that, that leads to passionate worship, doesn't it? What happens when you're in the deep end of the pool and you're, when you finally get to the top, you're like, boom, and you're like, yeah, right? Like it leads to passionate worship. It leads to a humble, humble understanding of forgiveness. When I understand the depth to which God went to rescue me. See, the only way I'll get that is when I, when I, venture out to the deep end and he goes from being my buddy God to the holy king. When I venture out to the deep end and I go from being a good guy who just needs a little advice to refine my life to being a desperate sinner who needs God to rescue me. Here's the truth. It's deep and it's high, but the love of God's also wide. What does that mean? Uh, how do I get my head around that? Well, for those of you who like to geek out on this kind of stuff like me, and maybe that's you, right? Email me. Tell me you do, right? But the Greek word for wide is platos. You forget that, I guess. But it means to spread out or it means to expand from one side to the other. It means it's really, 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 did I say really? <laughs> Broad. When I think about the wide love of God, I think about a verse that most of you have heard of. John 3, 16. For God... <clears throat> so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever, circle that, believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God so loved, the, the Greek word is cosmos, the whole wide world, right? That he gave his one and only son that whoever, it's wide, whoever, whoever means whoever <laughs> believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. What's the wide love of Jesus tell me? The wide love of Jesus is inclusive. God loves the cosmos. He loves the whole wide world. His love is wide enough to encompass the whole world. 
it, it, I would say it like this. It's almost like when it comes to the love of God, uh, these the cameras that we enjoy today, they got wide lens, panoramic view. It's almost like we got to go from the old-fashioned lens that we had, and we got to allow the love of God to take a panoramic view. We got to open it up a little bit. So it starts here. Uh, just draw this picture with me. It starts here. Me, if I'm going to understand the wide love of God, I got to understand first and foremost that God loves me. God loves me. God's love wraps around the entire world, and that includes me. Got to start there. No matter who I am, no matter who you are, no matter what I've done, no matter what you've done, no matter what others have said about me, no matter what others have said about you, no matter how often I've messed up, and I have, no matter how often you've messed up, listen, God loves me. Will you do me a favor? Listen, I know people are listening, right? Just say it out loud. I know. You might be in a restaurant or something watching this, right? Just say it out loud. God, just do it. God loves me. Come on, say it again. God loves me. I, I want to tell you something today. God loves you, but he doesn't just love you when everything's good, right? I, I heard a guy say it this way a lot. In your ugliest worst moments. Think of those. I want you to know God loves you. God loves me. The wide love of God means God loves me, but if I'm going to take that and begin, it's intriguing to me that the majority of times that God talks about his love in the Bible, the object of that love is not singular, it's plural. Look at this passage here in Romans. It says, God demonstrates his own love for, say the word out loud, for who? For, for us. Good. In this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. <laughs> Here's the deal. God loves me. But the truth is, when I widen that out, I realize God loves us. I'm not sure you can even begin to understand God's love apart from understanding community. If God loves the world, then he loves us. He, he loves my family. He loves my wife. Think about this. He loves my husband, if you're wife. He loves my children. He loves my friends. He loves those of us who would call Grace Church our home. That's really, really cool, right? His love is really, really wide. God loves me, and God loves us. Turn to somebody beside you, if you're watching this with somebody, and, and just look, go ahead, just do it, and, and just say this, God loves you too. Go ahead, they might need to hear it. God loves you too. Like, like I love that, right? God loves me, and God loves us, but listen, listen, you ready? If God loves me, that means God loves us. You ready? Here we go. And that means this, God loves them. That's the wide love of God. <laughs> You're saying, them who? <laughs> them their people who? You know who them is. <laughs> them their people. Them their people, you know, who aren't like us. Who it's easy to categorize. Them their people who don't look like us, talk like us, think like us, vote like us. You know them. For you, it might be them there, people of the opposite gender. Maybe you just can hardly stand them. Uh, for you, it might be them there, criminals. Them there, people from a different generation. 
Uh, them, they're people from a different religion. Them, they're people, you know, them people from a different race. Maybe it's them, they're people from a different country. Maybe it's them, you know, them on the different side of the political aisle. <laughs> you see, the truth be told, there might be some, you don't need to raise your hand, who in your honest moments wish that God's love wasn't so wide. Because you like God loves me, God loves us, but them there, people. <laughs> you see, that's what's fascinating about the gospel. There's no slide for this, but write this down somewhere. The gospel of Jesus is the most inclusive, yet exclusive message I know. What I mean by that is this, all are invited. All are invited, whosoever, and there's one way. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. It's inclusive, all invited. It's exclusive, Jesus is the only way. To understand the wide love of God is to realize that it's all inclusive. It includes me, it includes us, it includes them. I love the way Paul says this in Galatians. He says it fast, he says, he's talking to a church here that all of a sudden saw this diversity. He says, for y'all children of God through faith in Christ Jesus, and all who have been united with Christ in baptism have put on Christ like putting on new clothes. And he says this, there's no longer Jew, Gentile, slave, free, male, female, for you're all one in Jesus. And now that you belong to Christ, you are the true children of Abraham. You are his heirs and God's promise to Abraham belongs to you. What's he saying? He's saying, in Christ in particular, my particular identity is not my primary identity. He's not saying there's not men and women. That's <laughs> what he's saying. He's not saying there's not Jews and Gentiles. That's not what he's saying. He's saying the, the love of God eliminates walls that might divide us, even though there are differences between us. That's what he's saying. That God loves them the same as he loves us and the same as he loves me. God's love is inclusive, and God's love is inviting for all who would say yes and jump in. The extent to which you understand the wide love of God is the extent to which you're going to be willing to extend it. Now, now listen. Like, Dan, what do you mean by that? In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says something. Like, to be honest with you, something that's unsettling. He says, I want you to, to love you're like, oh, your enemies. What? Them? Them. Well, how in the world can I love my enemies? The only way I can do that is when I realize that at one time I was an enemy of God and he loved me. And when I understand that wide love of God, that he loved me and he loves us and he loves them. You see, when I receive, experience the wide love of God, there's no us versus them. I'm going to tell you this, there's not even good versus evil. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. Be careful of that kind of terminology. When I, when I hear people talking about different things that that maybe are near and dear to them, they're like, well, you know, this is really good, us, versus evil, them. 
And what that does is assumes that the evil is in them and the good is in us. And when I do that, I totally lose track of the power and the bigness of God's love. The evil's in me. The evil's in you. The evil's in us. The evil's in them. And the gospel meets us where we're at. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. Which leads to this. His love is, is deep. It's high. It's wide. Ready? And it's long. What's that mean? Just write this down. We'll make a few quick comments. The love of Jesus is eternal. I love that. Is eternal. Here's the question. Do you have a long view of Jesus' love for you today? Here's how this looks, maybe. A lot of us, we know God loves me now because we just talked about it. And if you don't, we've got to start there. But we have to establish that God loves me right now. He loves me in my worst moment, right? But, but God loves you today. But I don't know if it's ever dawned on you that God doesn't just love you today. But God, think about this, is an eternal God. So you, would you agree with that? God has existed forever. And some of you know this because bumper stickers all about it. God is love. So if God is eternal and God is love, God is eternally somebody who is love. You tracking with me? Has this ever dawned on you that God doesn't just love you today, but that God loved you before he ever created the first thing that was created? <laughs> I love that. Look at what it says in Ephesians chapter 1. It says, even before he made the world, God, what? Loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. I love that. That even before the world was created, he loved us. Think about it this way. God is love has existed forever. Some of you know this. Just do this with your fingers, right? The Trinity, that, that when you think about God, there's God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And God has existed forever and is love. Well, you know this. For love to happen, there's got to be an object to love. What happened? God forever has existed in this perfect community of love, Father and Son loving each other, Holy Spirit loving the Father, loving the Son. And what he has done, think about this, in the gospel, he invites us into this forever love. That's fascinating to me. I would fill the picture out this way, that God doesn't just love me now, but God has loved me forever. And he invites me into this forever love that he has. But there's something else that's so important for you to see. His love's long. <laughs> it's longer than you thought. Romans 8 says this. Can anything ever separate us from Christ's love? He's asking kind of rhetorical. Does it mean he no longer loves us if we have trouble or calamity or persecuted? Some of you are like going through hard stuff. It's like, ah, does God love us? We're hungry, destitute, in danger, threatened with violence. As the scriptures say, for your sake, we're killed every day. We're being slaughtered like sheep. And then he says this, no! <laughs> Despite all these things, overwhelming victory is ours through Christ who loved us. Now look what he says. Paul says, I am convinced that nothing can separate us from the God's love. Death, life, angels, demons, fears, today about worries about tomorrow, not even powers of hell can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or on the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Here's how it fills the picture out. God loves me now and he's loved me forever, but God will love me forever. Nothing can separate me from his love. Guys, that is an unusual kind of love. We live in a culture that falls in love and out of love with all kinds of people, celebrities, and sports figures. You love your quarterback until he throws five interceptions, right? But like we fall in and out of love so quick with all kinds of things. God doesn't fall in and out of love with us. He has loved us, he does love us, and he will love us. You know what that gives to me? Security. I don't have to live for God's love. You know what I can do? I can live the rest of my life from his love for me. Changes everything. For some of you, it changes everything. All of a sudden, I can live with a security. For some of you, you know what it does? It changes how I respond to sin in my life. Some of you, when, when, when things get all wackadoodle in your life, <laughs> you run from God. Because you're like, I don't want to. And here's the deal. When I understand his long love for me, I don't need to run from him. I can run into him. Because in the middle of my deepest challenge is a God who loves me. You see, here's what I know. God's love is deep. It's deeper than you thought. His love for you is costly. He loves you. It's high. It was sufficient. When Jesus died, he paid the full price so that you and I could not only be saved from our sin, but saved into God's family. The holy king of the universe is our father. And it's long. It's forever. It is a forever love. But it's also wide. It includes you. It includes us. It includes them. And so God help us to measure your love and compassion by nothing less than your cross. Thank you so much for loving us so much. I pray this in Jesus' name.